0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, an update on what doctors know about how novel coronavirus spreads. What does it mean if someone is asymptomatic? And are they contagious? Then, the changing reality of Alzheimer's, the disease that can afflict middle-aged people like Kathy Reginato.
1: I was devastated.
2: And what it's like for her husband, Dave. I think the biggest thing is I, uh, I miss Kathy. Not that she's gone, but the Kathy before. Best friend Kathy, argue with Kathy. Do stuff together with Kathy.
0: Overcoming the stigma of early-onset Alzheimer's. Plus, creating a bond between horses and people struggling to find their place in the world.
3: And that right there planted a seed in me that made me realize that I didn't have to give up.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis.
4: And I'm Avery Lill. Let's get right to the coronavirus in Colorado. Dr. Ken lin Q is a pulmonary critical care physician at National Jewish Health in Denver, one of the country's leading respiratory hospitals. Welcome back to the program, doctor. Thank you. When we first spoke with you a week ago, there were no known cases of COVID-19 in Colorado. Since that time, there are at least eight that have been identified in five different counties, including Denver. Most involve people who are exposed while traveling, but not all. What does this tell us about the spread of the disease at this point?
5: I think that what this tells us is exactly what we know about this virus, is that it spreads via travel. And because it's contagious enough that once it spreads via travel, it eventually settles into communities. We can look at Seattle as an example of how this happened. We know the original case traveled from China back to Squamish County. And then they trace the virus that's currently going on all the way back to that original case. So we know that he exposed people, even though he presented in a fairly prompt manner. And while it might take a while for a virus to eventually take that type of foothold in a community, it's event- this type of virus is going to do that. It's shown it In Italy, it's shown in Iran. It's shown it all around the world. And I think that we're just seeing it now in Colorado.
4: So the typical pattern is first travel, then community spread. The state has completed tests of dozens of people, yet still this morning we're hearing that there aren't enough kits. What are you hearing about the efforts to test for the novel coronavirus?
5: Yeah, so a lot of labs are working on building back up to the ability to test at the volume that we need. And we've heard the government talk about being able to test a million people a week. And just to put it in perspective for a lot of people, that would still mean it would take over 300 days to test the entire country at a population well over 300 million. So getting tests ramped up to be able to test enough people in a timely manner, it's just a um, tactical um, supply chain, work chain issue, workflow issue that takes time to get to. So we can't magically just poof off the shelf, have all the reagents for the test. It takes time to manufacture each component, put it together, quality test it so that we're actually getting good results and then get it shipped out. So it's not surprising that we're behind on our ability to test, um, particularly given that the original test that the CDC put out had to they had to do some tweaks to it to get it working the way they needed it to.
6: Now,
4: National Jewish Health, where you work, specializes in respiratory care, and severe cases of COVID nineteen involve respiratory issues. Is your hospital still pushing to be involved in the testing?
5: I know that the lab at National Jewish is working hard to get you know get their test up and running. It wasn't until a Saturday, a week ago, that they that the FDA approved um, independent labs to be able to test. So. Again, it's just a scaling up and getting ready to go type of deal for any lab, including a world-class respiratory pathogen lab like we have at National Jewish.
4: Today, a cruise ship docks in Oakland, California, where more than 20 people are infected. Officials say that it will take three days to disembark everyone from this cruise ship and they'll be taken to military bases, quarantined for another two weeks. On the surface level, this seems extreme. It's kind of like something out of a horror movie. Give us perspective on why this type of quarantine is so important.
5: I think that we can look back to the Diamond Princess as to why this is so important. So the decision made at that time was to quarantine everybody on the ship. And when they did it, it continued to spread and spread and spread. And then on top of it, one of the people coming out of quarantine from the Diamond Princess down in San Antonio, if I remember correctly, it was San Antonio, actually tested positive as they were going out of quarantine, and they had to pull this person back in and trace all of this person's contacts. So if you let the people off the ship without quarantining them, and this virus has a average of 6 to 14 days so when people are infectious after exposure you would definitely and
4: that's an incubation period incubation
5: period you would then have a group of people wandering around potentially infectious and not realizing they were so if you don't isolate them put them in quarantine you know you you run a risk and it's not it's not a good thing for individuals right and this is one of those things where the individual good versus the public good come into conflict, and this is probably the right way to approach this. The thing that it takes three days to get them off the ship is, you know, I think that that's based on the local protocols for how they're moving people, testing people, putting them into these safe areas for their quarantine. And I can't speak to that part, not being part of that process.
4: Now, you talk about people walking around and not knowing they're, that they are infectious. I'd like to get a little bit of clarity on a couple of points. We know that nearly 8 out of 10 people who get the novel coronavirus will have no symptoms or mild symptoms. What are mild symptoms?
5: So mild symptoms would be a day or two of fever, a couple days of runny nose, sore throat, just like we see with the common cold. I think a lot of us can relate to other cold viruses we have. We sit there, we have that day where, you know, I just don't feel right. Then I, and we're, maybe I'm coming down with something. The next day, yeah, I got a cold. My nose is red because I've been blowing it all day. Or, you know, I, yeah, I have this on and off fever and I feel a little extra fatigued above and beyond the day before. And then that goes away. Now, with the, with viruses, when that goes away, you can still shed some virus, so this goes into back the whole fourteen days.
4: So shedding of, a virus might mean you're contagious,
5: and shedding virus means you're contagious. And we know that there's some people and they've this has actually been published now who don't have any symptoms and shed virus. So when we say asymptomatic people can spread virus, those are the people we're talking about. The people who have no symptoms. When we say mildly symptomatic, these are your, the people we're talking about with the common cold symptoms that would not, might not even notice it when they have this virus.
4: So if I'm hearing you correctly, people, even people who are asymptomatic, who don't have any symptoms at all, they might be contagious as well?
5: It's possible. We know that the data we have is for 114 people who were in Germany, and they tested the whole group and, Two of the 114, and they had a known exposure, by the way. Two of those people had, you know, positive um, swabs for the virus. One of them never developed symptoms. The other one had a mild rash. So the mild rash would technically be a mild symptom, not asymptomatic. But noticing a mild rash is probably very subjective. In other words, if it wasn't a bunch of doctors staring at them every day because they tested positive, they might never have known that they had this rash.
4: Do you think hospitals where you have higher risk patients and places like assisted living facilities should consider maybe banning visitors or keeping patients in their rooms, even if they haven't tested positive for novel coronavirus? In other words, how proactive should places be instead of reactive to limit the spread of virus?
5: I think a lot of hospitals already have implemented some form of visitor restriction, And you can do this in different ways. You can have an outright ban on visitors. And that gets very tricky because we know that visitation and family is very important for the healing process in patients. There's also other levels of restrictions, such as only one visitor can come into the hospital at a time. Or you don't let any children in the hospital because especially with this virus, where they seem to be very mildly symptomatic, they would be perfect for spreading this virus without being very sick themselves. So you run into these conflicting elements of family's important for healing and the greater public good again. And we can see how this there's a little bit of this conflict between public health and individual health um, that can sometimes go on here. And each hospital has to weigh where they think we are in this before they make a decision. If I was in Seattle, I would be a lot more aggressive about banning people than I would necessarily in Colorado at this time. But I think you have to be thinking about this ahead of time and be proactive, as you said, Avery.
4: There's a lot to consider about limiting transmission. and about the minute we have left, do we know anything more about transmission? Like, can the disease be airborne or rather the infection, can it be airborne or how long can a novel coronavirus last on a
5: surface? Yeah. Yes, that's an excellent question. And it still appears that this is a droplet-based disease, which means that that six-foot rule that you hear about or two-meter rule if you're European to maintain um, safety from other people is important. This is that, um, that concept of you don't have to be isolated from people. You just want to don't want to be too close. How long it lasts on a surface is still not clear. We know from other viruses it could be anywhere from minutes to nine days, but we don't really know yet for sure.
4: Dr. Kenlin Q, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Thanks for having me back.
4: Dr. Kinlin Q is a pulmonary critical
0: care physician at National Jewish Health in Denver. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. Our next guest had just turned 50 when she noticed she wasn't thinking as clearly as she used to.
1: I had a lot of fog in my, in my head, and I just didn't know where that was coming from.
0: Kathy Reginato figured it had something to do with menopause, which can cause short-term memory issues. But the changes were pretty extreme.
1: I couldn't find my words. Um, I couldn't do math. It was really frustrating because I was a writer and I loved writing. I thought, what is going on?
0: These are excerpts from a video blog Reginato is doing about her experience with early-onset Alzheimer's. She and her husband, Dave, live in Longmont and have six children. Kathy, Dave, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Kathy, let's start with you, and Dave, feel free to jump in as well. Uh, I know it's not always easy for Kathy to express her thoughts. But, Kathy, when did you start noticing something was different and that you were more forgetful than usual?
1: Um, it was my 50th birthday, and I I felt crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. It was horrible, horrible, horrible.
2: Not able to organize your thoughts. Yes. And do the planning for the family like you had in the yes.
1: past. Yes, yeah. So I usually read to the kids, and so I couldn't do it. I couldn't do do read it. Read out
2: loud, yeah. It and, was difficult.
1: Um, and so... We started going through menopause or, you know... Right. You
0: thought it was a lot of other things, not Alzheimer's. Yes. Dave, when did you
2: first start noticing Kathy's symptoms? It may have been a little earlier than that. Kathy has been very involved with many different charitable organizations, activities. One of her uh, passions has always been foster children and orphans, uh, single moms, And so uh, she was involved with a singles moms group where she would give presentations, be part of the leadership team. And she was starting to have, I noticed a difficulty like organizing a coherent presentation. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first, but I didn't connect any of these dots. I think the first indicator was that uh, reading out loud as a family time where Kathy was always an excellent speaker, excellent reader. And she would be stumbling over words. Still, we didn't clue in anything at that point. Uh, we attributed it to menopause, maybe some kind of infection.
0: Was there a moment, Dave, when you thought, you know, this has gotten to the point where we need to seek outside help?
2: Yes. yes. So I think uh, the big defining moment for me was we were all on vacation in uh, in Mexico. It was May of 2018, so about you know, seven, eight months before the diagnosis, we were trying to play a game and Kathy couldn't play that game with the rest of us. And it was like, this is not just aging, you know, normal memory. And so then we uh, got real serious about getting in with some different doctors, trying to pinpoint it. Alzheimer's wasn't even, you know, on our radar just because like most people, we didn't think young people got, or middle-aged people, get uh, Alzheimer's disease. And so uh, that was when we uh, started getting a lot more serious.
0: I understand Alzheimer's disease can only be diagnosed after death, at least definitively. How did doctors diagnose Kathy?
2: So, like you said, there's only one for sure way to diagnose it. But uh, with Kathy, they diagnosed it via a spinal tap and uh, the different protein indicators they look for in the spinal fluid. And she had those telling proteins, unfortunately. Um, She also had an MRI. Actually, I believe a PET scan is more effective at seeing the entanglements that are caused with the protein uh, plaque buildup. That is common in the brain in in Alzheimer's. Additionally, we went to uh, basically a half-day test where they do a bunch of uh, brain exercises, tests, and that way they uh, identify the different type of cognitive disorder that you're experiencing.
0: And and Kathy, what was your reaction when you found out you had Alzheimer's at such an early age?
1: I was devastated. I I didn't even realize what Alzheimer's was.
0: So it was, yeah, it was really hard. Dave, Kathy takes medicine for the disease. At this point, what can medication do for people with
2: Alzheimer's? It's, it's basically just uh, slows down the symptoms. It doesn't actually slow the progression of the disease. They don't have any medicines like that at the moment.
0: Kathy, I understand you go to a support group for people with Alzheimer's, and you're the youngest in the group. How helpful is it to be with other people who have the disease too? Um,
1: they're, they're aging, so I'm just the little girl that <laughs> goes along. Well, and a lot of times they think and, your mom is the one because yeah, you I go know, with your mom. Yeah, I know my mom does.
2: Goes um, with you. So it, it
1: was funny because my mom is like uh, like a, on a tack. You know, sharp as a tack. Sh- yes. And, <laughs> um, and so when we went around the first time with the class, I had to say, It's me that's the the (laughs) Alzheimer's (laughs) patient. And so it was kind of funny.
2: But how does it feel to be in there with other people that have Alzheimer's? Um,
1: I don't know. I mean, they are old. I mean, I'm getting old. But it does feel good. To be with other people. Yes, uh uh-huh.
0: Dave, just from this conversation, I can tell you spent a lot of time speaking when Kathy has trouble getting her words out, and I imagine you spend a lot of your time caring for her and for your younger kids, the ones that still live at home. What kind of toll has the
2: disease taken on you? Um, Kathy worries about this a lot. <laughs> it's, been, um, it's been difficult. I've uh, made a conscious effort to try to take care of myself and stay in my exercise routines and get time alone and hang out with friends still. But it's definitely uh, difficult because I'm on duty a lot. But I think the biggest thing is I uh, I miss Kathy. Not that she's gone, but the Kathy before, uh, best friend Kathy, argue with Kathy, do stuff together with Kathy. And that's been the biggest loss for me to adjust to because it's kind of a different kind of loss in that it's kind of slowly happening. And so it's hard to know how to cope with that. You know, after 30 years together, you you get very used to each other. And, and so that's been uh, probably the most difficult thing.
0: Do you have any sense of the progression of the disease? What is the prognosis for Kathy in the
2: next five years or so? I think uh, with uh, what we've kind of just read and heard, I mean, doctors are always trying to be very You know, positive. But uh, I think Kathy's, you know, a good three to five years into her symptoms. There's probably another three or five years ahead, is probably what we're looking at. Uh, The early Alzheimer's progresses much more quickly Mm -hmm. in general, and I think we're seeing that. And so that's what's ahead.
0: And Kathy, Part of the reason you wanted to do this video blog is not only to raise awareness, but for your children, too. hmm Yes. What did you think this would offer them, this video blog?
1: Well, now I have um, every um, child. child, and I, it's on um, tape.
2: So you've so, done a vlog with each of the children. Yes, so so,
1: um, so that was my my number one that I want them to see me not like when I'm um, can't
2: remember them. Can't or? remember,
1: and um, and so I can. Well, I won't be there, but um, but
2: they will have. That they will have reflect that. Reflect upon.
1: Yes.
0: And do you feel like you've been able to help others through your
2: video mm-hmm. blog and through talking? Yes,
1: a lot, a lot of people. Uh,
2: like. She's, we've connected with a lot of people through the mm-hmm. vlog, from all over the world, which is pretty amazing. We've made some really close friends. We've actually visited our uh, new friends in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. The husband has Alzheimer's. He's 50 right. years old. And so that connection has been really uh, encouraging to us because uh, we're such similar situations. We've had uh, people pick up Kathy's story all the way in uh, Great Britain, and we had a German news crew come out. And so it's been exciting and purposeful and fulfilling for us.
0: And Dave, having seen Alzheimer's up close firsthand, how has your perspective changed on the disease?
2: Well, I, uh, the, my perspective has changed in that, um, it just is an insidious disease. It slowly takes a person away from you. The fact that there's no hope that comes with it is difficult for, to cope with. There's a stigma also that comes with it that I didn't realize. It makes people uncomfortable to know that there's, there's not really a cure. And so, uh, people feel awkward around you. And so um, that also has kind of spurred our interest to help with uh, just people understanding the disease better, uh, the need for additional research, and that it can affect people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s.
0: Thank you both for being with us. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Kathy and Dave Reginato live in Longmont. They have six children. A couple of years ago, Kathy was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease at a relatively young age. She has a video blog about the progression of her condition and hopes to raise awareness about the disease. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: CPR News is here to answer your questions about newly confirmed coronavirus cases in Colorado. With CPR, we promise you'll get the facts and not the hype. Go to CPR.org for the latest on what we know from the scientific and health communities and what you can do in your daily life. Get up-to-date information and sign up for The Lookout, our daily newsletter. That's all at
0: CPR.org. Seven years ago, professional horse trainer Ginger Gaffney got an unusual call for help. It was from a ranch near her home in northern New Mexico that serves as an alternative to prison. And the ranch was having horse troubles. Gaffney went for a visit and was astounded at what she found. She's written about it in her new memoir, Half Broke. Also with us is Ayla Jarvis, a former resident of the ranch. Ginger, Ayla, welcome to the show.
6: Oh, thanks for having us.
0: The residents of this ranch are people who've had run-ins with the law or have substance abuse problems. They're in the program to turn their lives around, and they run all aspects of the ranch, from cooking to livestock care to administration. There are
6: no wardens or guards. Ginger, why did they ask for your help? Because the the horses were uh, running after the residents and chasing them down, a few times a day, every time they brought the trash out, people were hurt. Their ankles were uh, sprained, wrists were sprained. And then there was also some very bad horse accidents that had happened. And they had sort of, they didn't know what to do about it. And they reached out. Uh, they they found my card at a Española feed store and called me one day.
0: Ginger, on your first day at the ranch, the horses chased you and some of the residents into the hay barn. One of the horses is named Hawk. Mm. Can
6: you read what happens next for us? The horses roar up to the wooden gate at a gallop, a band of snaked bodies twisting and kicking dirt into the air. They level their heads and necks down to the height of their shoulders, flat, thin, and ready to strike. It sounds like a hiss, but it's more like spit. Hawk opens his mouth and his teeth jut forward at us. He snaps his jaw shut and curls back his lips. The force of it shoots a mist of saliva all over our faces. He can see us, they all can, but they cannot get to us. Their dark, hollow eyes are unrecognizable to me. Watching them bear their teeth at us like predators, as if we were their meal, makes me think these are not horses.
0: Ginger, you've worked with horses for years, many that had serious
6: problems, but explain how this was different. Well, you rarely see the instincts of horses reversed where they're really a prey animal. They're fairly easy to dominate because of that. They're a flight animal. They flee before they fight. So what they did at, at the ranch was they had reversed the flight instincts and it turned into a fight instinct. Mm-hmm. And you rarely see that. Occasionally, you'll might see it in a stallion, but a whole herd of horses acting like that is not ever seen.
0: We'll get back to the horses in a moment, but Ayla, you were 26 when the court ordered you to the ranch. It was a few months before Ginger got there, and this would have been your third time in prison. You went to the ranch instead. What was going on in your life when you originally ended up in prison way back at age 19?
3: At the time, I was working in a family business that was selling marijuana, and we were arrested on a federal case, all of us. And so I spent four years in prison the first time, and then I was paroled, and I did really well for a while. And then I relapsed on heroin, and then committed a series of small crimes, and then had a parole violation, and picked up another state case in New Mexico, actually, and then went back to prison. And then they were going to sentence me to a third term in prison when
0: uh, I had the choice to go to Delancey Street. And we should say um, that the ranch is called the Delancey Street Ranch, which is part of a San Francisco-based organization. That's correct. And what were your first impressions of the ranch?
3: It was very tough. I, I really didn't know what I was getting into before I got there. And I came in, and they dressed me in really baggy clothes. And I I had to pretty much shed the exterior of who I thought I was. And I had to work, and I had to hold myself accountable, and I had to be honest, and I had to wake up and, and do something every day, which was a lot different than the prison scene that I had just come from. I wanted to leave the first year I was there. <laughs> I didn't want to be there <laughs> at all. I thought prison was a lot easier, and so I just remember crying. I remember breaking down. I remember just becoming
0: really hopeless because I didn't think I could make it through the program. So you'd been at the ranch for seven months when you were assigned to the livestock team, and these are the residents who care for the ranch animals. What was that like?
3: I didn't want to become part of the livestock team at first. I was very apprehensive. Um, At that point in my stay, I, I was very hopeless, and I was finding trouble caring for myself and for others. And I was at a kind of a despondent state where I didn't I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to either die or go back to prison, and that's where my mentality had had shifted to. It was very narrow. So my mentor at the time kept encouraging me to join the livestock program to hopefully help me get out of myself and and help me um, do something different because I was at a at a juncture where Delancey Street was like, we don't know if we can help
0: you anymore because you're so lost. And the mentors are other people who are living at the ranch who have been there longer than you had.
3: That's correct, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: So, Ayla, we'll talk about your experiences early on with the horses, but let's get back to the horses themselves. Ginger, you chose to begin your work with Hawk, this aggressive horse that we heard about earlier. And by the end of your session with him, you were able to put a halter on him and to pet him. What mindset did you need to make that happen?
6: Well, Hawk was the leader of the of the herd, and it was real clear. And, and that being a horse trainer for 25 years, and you need to solve a problem, you figure out who's in charge. And Hawk was in charge. And so, what I know about horses is none of them really want to be number one. It's the most stressful part of the herd. You're in charge of finding food, you're in charge of safety, and very few horses really want to be number one. So that, that whole herd of horses all wanted to be number one. But Hawk was the leader, and I had to shift his mentality to accept the fact that he could be number two. And it was a very he was very aggressive. And number two after you. After me, that's right. I was number one. And with Hawk, he had been able to dominate almost 100 people at this ranch. And so the first scene in the book is me working with Hawk in the round pen trying to convince him that I was something that could be respected. And you weren't just a horse trainer at the
0: ranch. You had to find a way to teach the residents how to work with these horses. And they
6: weren't typical horse handlers. How did you go about teaching them? Uh, for the first couple of months, I hauled my horses over to the ranch. Um, I would work with the, with the Delancey street horses myself in the round pen, trying to create some safety and some respect. And then when, on the days when I worked with the residents, I would haul over about five horses and we'd put the Delancey horses up So they couldn't get to us. And we all worked with horses that were trained. And it was a a big surprise for the residents because they'd never, most of them don't know horses. And they were like, wow, is this what horses are supposed to be like? I didn't know that, (laughs) you know. So it was just getting them to have in their bodies a way of moving around horses that horses could relate to, like being able to look up, open up their chest, kind of walk with confidence, but with ease at the same time, not with like angry movements. And so I was just teaching them body language. It's also noticing the horse's body language. That's right. It's a whole world of language that has no words and very little sounds, and a lot of the guys would be, you know, talking and going, come on, man, come on, get, and I'd say, wait, 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 they do not understand you, your whole body needs to talk, not just your mouth, that subtle things are really more effective than the things that you could do with whips and ropes you could do with your body. You and Ayla worked together at the ranch. Ginger, what were
0: your first impressions of her?
6: Oh, my goodness. Um, I actually have pictures of Ayla, and sometimes I look at them just to remind me because she's made such a transformation. But Ayla would never look up. She had the habit of pulling most of her hair out from around her face and twirling it. And I was a little overwhelmed because I'd never worked with somebody that despondent. So I had to really wake her up, and I was afraid for her, her safety. Because she was that far gone. I mean, she just wasn't with me. And so often I'd be like, I'd have to clap right in front of her face, or I'd have to really scream at her to get her to look up. Because you didn't feel she was paying attention. She was not, she was gone. You know, she was not just not looking, but she wasn't even there.
0: And Ayla, let's talk about one of your first experiences with the horses. Ginger asked you to hold a horse's hoof so it could be trimmed. And what happened next?
3: Well, it was raining. I was soaking wet. I was tired. And I, I didn't really understand how this was going to help me in any way. <laughs> but I was willing at that point to pretty much try anything just because I, I had become so desperate. And I started to feel a little bit of a change just from being out there around the animals. So when she asked me to to trim the hoof, I, I was a bit curious, but I, I really didn't see the benefit in it. But I I did it anyways. And I just remember getting jostled around, the horse rearing up on me, getting thrown around. I was bleeding. I was soaking wet. And I just had this determination to finish it out. And, and that right there planted a seed in me that made me realize that I didn't have to give up. I didn't have to give up on my life, myself, or anything anymore. And so it was that moment. That I just wanted to finish, and I didn't want to just finish the one hoof I wanted to do all four. <laughs> I was absolutely determined I spent hours out there until it was dark, and i I uh, found something in me that day that just planted a seed of hope
0: and that was early on. How did working with the horses affect you after you had been with them for a longer amount of time?
3: Oh, it just completely opened me up. and I, I I remember waking up one morning and hearing the horses neigh outside, and I thought to myself, I said, huh, I wonder if they've been fed yet, if someone's been out there to feed them and take care of them. And for me, that was like an instant click that, wow, I actually care about something because not caring for so long, not even caring about myself or anybody around me or any living thing for that matter um, to actually realize like I have an interest in something else's well-being, especially a living creature, was very transformational for me. And from that point on, I was like, you know what? I can care and I can care about myself. And then that transferred into caring about other people and in turn caring about my future. And then I remember riding a horse and and feeling like the horse was an extension of myself. because Ginger would always say, think of the horse's legs as your legs. And so when they would run fast I say I would feel the sense of power like you know what I can run fast too I can I can take hold of my life and really and really change and I, they helped me believe in change and I had to really get honest with myself because with horses you have to be completely honest and open and you have to be completely present when working with them if not then they'll run all over you and I just I was tired of being run over by myself by addiction by everything else. And I just, I, um, I found a strength that I didn't know that I had working with him.
0: We're talking with Ayla Jarvis about her experience with horses at an alternative prison ranch in New Mexico. Ayla's story is part of a memoir written by our other guest, Ginger Gaffney. Gaffney's a horse trainer who worked with the horses and residents at the ranch. And Ginger, eventually you felt like you fit in at the ranch in a way you hadn't felt before. Um, what was it about being among a bunch of recovering addicts and
6: offenders that felt right to you? Um... Growing up, I came out um, as a queer woman, like, in my high, freshman year of high school. But I came out, but I was still really, you know, the other, because at that time it was the 70s. And so I was really alone. And I don't know that that was completely what made me such an isolated human being, because I grew up as an extreme introvert as well. Like, I didn't speak until I was seven years old and really didn't speak a lot until college. So there was a time in my life that I was a... Ghost to myself, just not there. And everybody around me knew it, and nobody knew how to reach me. And when I got to the ranch, it took a while for me to realize how much the shapes of the people reminded me of myself. And I ended up going back in time in my memories and just feeling how desperately isolated I was and alone. And I couldn't help but see myself in them. I have never been, uh, had addictions, but I had a time in my life that. I think now, during this time, you would have called it depression or close to even suicidal, perhaps, you know. And I saw it all around me there in the shapes and the forms and the body movements. And it was like looking into a mirror. It was pretty hard, pretty—I um, think I started feeling shame again, you know. Mm-hmm. And it just—it woke me up. And it also—it woke me up in a way of my community because— I wasn't somebody who had a a, like a soft heart around addiction. I've been robbed about four times all by addicts and they steal my saddles and my bridles. And I had a pretty ugly attitude. And when I started stripping away and I was watching people weekly strip away and I started seeing people for who they really were, and it just brought up a lot of compassion that I never really had for addicts. You still volunteer at the ranch. You
0: also do other work with horses and people in recovery. What makes horses
6: good for this kind of work? Oh, absolutely. This is like the message for me with the book is people in recovery have really uh, lost themselves, lost their bodies. And Ayla was one of the people who just was gone. Her body was no longer a functioning body. And we see so much of that in our communities, right, on the streets and on the corners. Horses demand that you get into your body. And for me, what I've learned about recovery is, is the recovery comes up through the body and then into the brain. And so the brain can function after the body gets back to work. And so it's step by step, getting people back into their bodies, being in the presence of an animal, like Ayla said, is like um, wakes you right up because you have to be right there on your feet, your whole body present. And so recovery and horses to me, it's an absolute match. And Ayla, you're out in the world
0: again. Talk about what you're doing these days.
3: <laughs> I'm doing quite a bit, actually. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think I'm doing too much. Um, so I'm working on finding a balance now to kind of find some downtime because I've realized that's important in recovery as well. So I am actually doing quite a bit. Um, as soon as I left the ranch, I started riding with a farrier, and a farrier is the horse shoeer and horse hoof trimmer. And that's kind of what, what my first introduction to the horses was with Ginger. And so w- once that helped transform me, I, I really wanted to continue to shoe and trim horses. And blacksmith is one of the things that I do as well. And so I, I learned from... I, I apprenticed with a lady for over a year and started my own farrier business called A&A Hoof Care. And I do that with a partner who went to horseshoeing school also from the program. And then that helped me get into the place where I live right now, which is a ranch. So I, I work there and I pay most of my rent through working with the horses. And the horse community really took me in in a lot of ways. As soon as I left the program, I really relied on them and they helped me. They opened their doors to me and opened their arms to me and homes to me. And I was able to really stay grounded through the horses. The other thing I do is I work as a full-time event and wedding planner at a golf course. That is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And then I also do a part-time beekeeping I have my own little business. It's called Best Mm Beesness. So I do beekeeping, and then I'm also a college student right now at the Central
0: New Mexico Community College. So horses really remain an important part of your emotional health.
3: Absolutely, yes. They keep me grounded, and they keep me honest. And anytime I'm feeling a little bit stressed out or overwhelmed with life, I know if I go out there with the horses, they're going to be a reflection of my my energy level. And so I really have to calm myself. And I find it very therapeutic to even go out and muck, which is pick up their manure. (laughs) It's a form of therapy for me. Anything
0: to be near them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Ginger, we talked about how you felt like you never fit in for most of your life. Now you're a white woman living and working in a Hispanic Catholic community in New Mexico. How do you fit in there?
6: I think I fit in really well. I, you know, what matters most in my valley is um, work, hard work, how you take care of your land, and how you take care of your animals. And in my community, people come to me to ask me to help them when their horses are injured. They ask me to go into the mountains and help them gather their cattle. Being queer and being white, and even though I'm like the minority in my valley, I've always felt really welcomed. I've always felt really appreciated. And I feel like it's a real example that, you know, people that are queer can live rurally and feel safe. I get that question a lot when I'm out reading for the book because I think people would like to move out of the city. Some people would like to live how I live, but they've never felt safe. So I think my story is a a little bit of hope for that.
0: The book lays bare a lot of your life and raw emotions. How does it feel to have people reading it now?
6: Oh, it's really, I'm such an introvert that I'm pushed on this one. It's very hard to get out into the public. Um, You know, if I can do it, then other people can do it. And that's what's happening when I'm out to reading. I just try to be really honest about my own introversion and that um, this is really hard for me, and but I you know I believe in what we did together, and it's pushing me to get the story out. And maybe there are people out there that it'll really resonate with. I really hope so, but that's my motive, and that's what's behind that's what's pushing me because I would not be doing this in any natural way, any other way. <laughs> yeah. And Ayla, what was it like to read someone
0: else's portrayal of you?
3: It was great to see what somebody else saw. Um, but at the same time, in, in, your, in my head, I, I really built up that I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. And so to realize how I was actually portraying myself and how somebody else uh, saw me, it was, uh, it was pretty eye-opening, to say the least. And it really brought me back. To reading, reading Ginger's book is, really brought me back to uh, the places and the transformation process that I went through. And it's, it's made me feel a lot better Um, Because I realized everything that all the challenges that I had to go through and and really relive those. And it just makes me really proud to be where I am today.
0: (laughs) Ginger, Ayla, thanks so much for being with us. Thank Thank you you for having us. Professional horse trainer Ginger Gaffney's new memoir is Half Broke about working with troubled horses and the residents of an alternative prison ranch in New Mexico. Ayla Jarvis is a former ranch resident and her story is part of the book. Teens use social media to share stuff like memes, which often make light of serious topics. For our Teens Under Stress series, CPR reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis talked with kids about memes and how they communicate fears around climate change.
7: It's lunch hour at Palmer High in Colorado Springs. Once a week, the school's climate club meets over sandwiches and reusable water bottles to talk big ideas. Wouldn't that be great to have a downtown solar-powered school? That's 15-year-old Taylor Salisbury, a sophomore. She started the club after feeling depressed about climate change. The group organizes strikes. They're in talks with the school district about a sustainability plan. I think it's become a major part of my life. It's sad, and it's also empowering at the same time. But before Taylor started the club, she made an Instagram account called Palmer Planet. I also made some memes to get at my generation. She says memes help connect kids to issues, like climate change. This is how we talk about issues in the most non-offending way. If you spend any time on the internet at all, you've encountered a meme. A well-known meme style is an image captioned with different jokes, likely in bold white lettering. One example? Disaster Girl, it's a close-up photo of a young girl looking right at the camera.
5: With a slight grin on her face, making her appear kind of villainous and malevolent.
7: That's Matt Shimkowitz, senior editor at Know Your Meme, a site that researches and documents them. Behind the little girl, there's a house on fire,
5: and it looks like... She's pleased with the fire or that she perhaps started the fire.
7: Taylor Salisbury used the meme to make a point. And the caption is, climate change isn't real. Matt Shemkowitz says these climate and environment themed memes spike in popularity with teens around big events, like the Australian bushfires.
5: There's a lot of gallows humor about it. It's a lot of jokes about how there isn't going to be a planet for them to grow old into, which is obviously very sad.
7: He thinks the memes reflect a feeling of desperation.
5: I think that that is a, a bit of a defense mechanism to kind of express concern about these things and kind of spread these ideas farther.
7: Roxy Houck is a sophomore also in Palmer High's Climate Club. She agrees that memes help get the word out on the issue. She says she's not one to do a lot of research. I
4: find out a lot of what I uh, know about what's happening from social media or memes on social media.
7: The memes are also a way for her to find humor in the situation that otherwise, she says, is frightening.
4: It's definitely coping.
7: It's seeing that like It's not just me or it's not just the people I know. It's like almost all the teenagers I know know about it and are worried about it. She says memes can desensitize you to scary stuff like coronavirus or war. But these teens see environment memes as different. They help them have a conversation about something that's otherwise tough to talk about. And if teens can talk about climate change online or off, it means they might want to do something about it. Ivan Tochomani-Hernandez is a senior at DSST Montview High in Denver. He's part of the school's green team. He says memes give kids a voice, especially since they can't vote.
5: Connecting with others from other schools, other states, other countries, it's an amazing feeling to have.
7: Tochomani-Hernandez says he immigrated from Mexico because the pollution there was too much for his health issues. He says memes and social media can be a source of hope jokes about how renewable energy is more affordable, or people making fun of themselves for how passionate they are about reusable straws. He brings up 17-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who has almost 10 million followers on Instagram.
5: If somebody so young and so talented could bring a global change, it makes me hopeful for the future.
7: For Luke Bowen, another senior on the green team, there's one thing that disheartens him about talking climate through social media.
5: Like even Greta, like sometimes she's super big and then she kind of like fades away again. Like anything, like like trends, (laughs) which is kind of unfortunate.
7: But Natalie Smink, another senior on the team, says those trends show how climate change is a global issue to use the hashtag global climate strike on photos and videos for the green Team's social media account. You could see a post from someone, you know, in Europe striking at the same time as someone in the US. It does make it kind of a trend where it will disappear, but it gives that unity to begin with and I think that's what the world really needs. And these memes don't just live online. You can see them printed out on picket signs and posters when teens go on climate strikes. Dago Brato-Grijala Flores, another senior on the Green team, points out why millions have turned out to those protests.
2: It was social media that did that, and if social media can organize things such as that, just imagine what more it could create.
7: For them, these memes are no joke. They're part of sparking a
0: movement for a sustainable future. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR News.